Welcome to the Death Panel. Become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod to get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes as well as a discount on merch. So today we are joined by a friend of the show, Jules Gleason. Jules, welcome back to the panel. It is so nice to have you here. Nice to be back with you. Thanks. Jules is a communist writer, theorist, and historian from London living in Vienna. She is one of the editors of the forthcoming book, Transgender Marxism, out from Pluto Press this May, which you should absolutely pre-order. If the pre- is the pre-order live yet? Yeah, the, pre-order, the pre-orders are live on various websites, including um, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Waterstones in the UK, and a few other places. So... Thankfully, not only Amazon. Yeah, pre-order anywhere except for Amazon. Um, (laughs) The last time we had Jules on, which was a patron episode from last October, we talked about the trans healthcare system in the UK, the absolutely inhumane wait times, creeping privatization, anti-trans ideology in the press, and some of the legal challenges like the Tavistock case, which were being mounted at the time basically to try and use the legal arena to further restrict access to care, especially for trans minors. Since we last had Jules on, there has been a ruling in Belle v. Tavistock. Uh, The ruling in December means that people under the age of 16 experiencing gender dysphoria in the UK can no longer be considered able to give informed consent for treatment. And we wanted to have Jules back to talk about some of the aftermath of of this decision, the reverberations this has had on model bills being introduced in the US, and to break down not only the facts about what's going on in the UK, but to get into some of the ideological underpinnings of the entire gender critical movement and the rhetoric that's driving this current wave of anti-trans policy and legal challenges. So the Bell v. Tavistock decision, this is kind of like indicative of the sort of like general moral panic, which surrounds a lot of the coverage on this issue. Can we briefly talk about the facts of the case, the decision? And I think this is sort of a good way to get into the ideology and the fallout and aftermath of this ruling. Yeah, for sure. So um, basically, the best intro I've read was written by a friend and a comrade of mine, Gritchy Bars, who uh, wrote a very interesting piece entitled Blocking Puberty Blockers, Boobs for All and the Latest Anti-Trans Craze Judgment. And um, <laughs> I love the title. The, yeah, and the facts of the matter are primarily about uh, a pair of uh, former patients of this gender identity clinic, the Tavistock, which is the only uh, British clinic which is focused on people under the age of 18. Um, Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust is the, the, full, name of, the full name of it. And um, so for the time being, at least, like we discussed last time, this case is basically, uh, this case was aiming and has now succeeded, at least temporarily, in bringing all treatment of patients, or I should say all um, formal NHS-provided treatment of patients under the age of 18 to a halt. So um, at least on a provisional basis until the appeal is completed, which we can talk about in a minute, this is kind of something which has basically uh, brought this treatment to a halt. So an important thing to say about that is treatment was barely at more than a halt like prior to this treatment. Already you're in a situation where uh, waiting times were between three and four years, and this was prior to... COVID, importantly. So um, we're talking about a service which was operating really at a crawling, um, excessively long wait already. So now, um, now for the time being, the ruling has basically specifically focused on puberty blockers, um, which 
for those of you who are not familiar with it, so this is primarily about an intervention aimed by kind of its nature at teenagers. And the current ruling is that puberty blockers are only really available to people who are 18 or older, which, um, yeah, at that point, the, <laughs> the, the, the point of taking sailed. puberty blockers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, <laughs> the ships definitely sailed. So this is, um, so this is kind of the situation as it stands at the moment. Well, I actually, I, I want, I want you to like talk a little bit about the, the undergirding of this ruling because it fe- it feels to me when I was reading it and like I don't know very much about um, sort of uh, d- judicial system in, in the UK but like when I was reading it and I was like thinking about the like the the illogic like of the ruling it seemed very if not familiar, something I could imagine being transposed into into the U.S. context, or at least mm-hmm. the, the the sort of fallacies and myths within it, like transposed quite easily, as I think we're seeing like today, uh, that the new legislative sessions in the states seem to to sort of evince that. But like the the ruling seems to be founded on like a really both like really bad logic and reasoning, but also like a really weird interpretation of the sort of like the research evidence out there on the relationship uh, between several different like phenomena in, in, in transition. Can you, can you talk a little bit about like what this, this ruling actually like said? Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about the, uh, the logic of it. I think the, um, the kind of movement undergirding it is another question. Maybe we can talk about that in a moment, but the logic of the legal decision as it presents itself is as follows. Um, so the, the notion is that, uh, puberty blockers themselves are pretty easily reversible. You simply stop taking them, and then the um, body's endocrine system, like the gonads of the teenager, reassert themselves. So as soon as you cease taking puberty blockers, the stuff they were preventing is going to begin. So that's like right. um, the basic point of it. But the legal argument which allowed um, these to seem more sinister than they actually are is that puberty blockers are generally the first course in like a two-part treatment whereby if you're on puberty blockers for a time, um, then normally the next move is to begin uh, cross-sex hormone um, interventions, hormone replacement therapy um, for the person who's on them. So the idea is that uh, although the teenager is um, competent, so there's this British legal principle called Gillett competency. And mm-hmm. um, for people who didn't listen to the last episode, the, the long story short is Gillett competency is all about whether the teenager is um, conscious, both of the decision they're making and then the long-term ramifications. <laughs> so what the legal case, so what the legal case did is they sort of rolled the Gillett competency decision of um, two drugs. So firstly, the puberty blockers and then the cross-trans sex hormones and said, well, since these are two different stages, any um, teenager who is consenting to puberty blockers must also be Gillett competent to consent to the full HRT. So this is kind of like arbitrarily making it a much higher bar to cross. So um, what Gritchie Bars uh, has to say about this and that piece is um, I'll just read you out a bit. So they they basically say banning an innocuous reversible treatment for under 16s because a treatment which is and will remain available to only over eight, over 16s may have irreversible effects that someone under 16 might not be able to appreciate explodes, exposes the flawed logic of the court and leaves the decision wide open to appeal. So that's their opinion and that's kind of what I agree. They've sort of like, um, yeah, quite, uh, they've made this kind of contrivance of rolling two decisions um, into one to kind of get this 
decision that way. Yeah, I mean, it's really kind of taking like the gateway drug argument and saying yeah. that the puberty <laughs> blockers are like a, a gateway to HRT as if as if ignoring the fact that puberty blockers are an intervention that need to come at a specific time timed with puberty, which typically happens prior mm-hmm. to the age of 18. Right, right. And in terms of the U.S. ones, one of the things we were uh, uh, talking about in kind of the run up to this show is there's, I think there's one um, U.S. state, I think of Mississippi, where they're planning on um, halting these interventions until the age of 21, which I guess is the U.S. drinking age. So that's why they picked it. Um, <laughs> I can't see any other earthly reason you'd do that if you've been able to serve in the military for three years and then you're finally able to get an HRT. But um Anyway, um, so that that is this kind of strange, um, this strange treatment of teenagers and especially autistic teenagers, because autistic teenagers are often like a flashpoint um, for those on the kind of anti-trans side, or they're used as this kind of like exemplary case of like underdevelopment. And um, I guess we can talk about this other piece, which I was um, very interested to read by another friend of mine, Dominic Fox, called um, Not Quite adults, which is Abigail uh, Schreier's book. I'm sure some people have heard of it, Irreversible <laughs> Damage, the Transgender Craze, Seducing Our Daughters. So she's especially uh, interested. In, and daughters, of course, does not mean um, trans women in this, or trans girls in this, <laughs> this title. And, um, and what Dominic Fox is kind of talking about in this piece, Not Quite Adults, is exactly this sort of, this way that teenagers, autistic people of whatever age, And in this instance, kind of transgender people sort of get rolled into these pre-existing tropes about um, underdeveloped brains and like uh, this kind of awkward feature of teenagers as being individuals with their own will and how parents sort of like bridle against this, this notion and this fact. And if we're talking about kind of what's undergirding the ruling i think this is like a large part of it and i highly recommend that that piece for some kind of like i guess one autistic intellectuals um insight onto it yeah yeah i mean i feel like part of the argument being made by a lot of these uh gender critical activists in the uk is that this that trans is sort of trending and (laughs) and that all these kids are just being swept up in the in the heat of the moment and that Mm -hmm. it's really just a sort of like social pressure or responding to i don't know crisis of modernity or Mm -hmm. you know everyone is just autistic and so they're self-diagnosing with varying degrees of autism online in these forums and they're self-diagnosing with yeah. uh, trans identity and then they're angry at their parents for not immediately accepting their self-diagnosis as fact and it's an incredibly infantilizing way to describe a social phenomenon first of all but it is pretty pervasive the idea that this is sort of just something that's caught fire among the teens and isn't actually right. real well, okay there's a few <laughs> few things to to <laughs> there's a few things to say about it and this is also this is one of the things dominic uh, fox talks about in in this piece is exactly this notion of fixation like the teenage fixation that the the teenagers are are prone to this kind of uh i suppose you'd say fetishistic thinking like making one thing uh the explanation for everything um and strangely enough this is done by parents who are kind of trying to explain autism as the basis of gender dysphoria which is the especially peculiar part of it um but at any rate like um this this um focus on like fixation and susceptibility to trends is really um uh quite key to it and indeed one of the groups which um supported this uh eventual outcome which is now being appealed one of the groups which was kind of lobbying and pressuring um, to avoid this is literally called Transgender Trend. Like, that's the name of the organization. <laughs> oh <my God>. um, 
I like that they talk about all this, this like tr- crazes and trends. It's like, is this like ninth? They're talking like nineteen twenties like dance, uh, dance. Like the Charleston was a trend. Exactly. The Charleston <laughs> was a craze. Like, well, all the Pokemon ex- cards are turning the children to Satan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> exactly. And then and then magic cards before that. I mean, speaking of like craze, like sort of like fix fixated crazes. Yeah. Can you also like talk because because you mentioned. Uh, sort of how like there is this fixation on like people assigned female at birth and like this turf energy seems to sort of like revolve around like the like notions of childbearing and and like pregnancy and like mm-hmm. how, can you can you talk a little bit about how protecting the birth line yeah like how that all the, that... the noble white race <laughs> <laughs> very bene Gesserit. yeah wait, breeding but... out the degeneracy exactly <laughs> can, you, can you like talk about how that factors into all of this because i think that's to me that's just like oh, it's yeah so the simplest way i can put this is they they sort of flip it around when they're talking about children and adolescents it's always the like yeah the so-called girls and daughters it's always Mm -hmm. the trans masculine youth that are most kind of horrifying um to people minded this way and when i say to people minded this way i I mean both right wingers and also your sort of transphobic feminists people Mm -hmm. who are by and large um maybe they've even belonged to left-wing organizations or liberal um uh the liberal or left-wing mindset and this is what's especially prevalent in britain and basically what they do is they sort of flip it between uh adolescents so with adolescents it's always the the trans males who are causing the most problem and with Mm -hmm. adults the the worst are always the trans women so people who are claiming womanhood um are the most threatening you know they're coming into uh female only spaces and they're predatory and so on and they don't seem to have so much to talk about adult trans men um, unless, of course, by adult trans men, you mean, you know, 22 year olds who are still being treated like children by their parents. Uh, <laughs> they're willing to include they're willing to include them. But that's the kind of exceptional basis. Um, so so like the reason this is is very interesting. And this childbearing aspect is definitely one part of it. Um, there is just this strange wing of feminism, which is really keen on reducing women to their reproductive capacity or reducing womanhood, I should say, um, to, yeah, reproductive capacity, uh, which is pretty peculiar. But um, what uh, what I guess I could to sort of like draw us away from that crowd for a moment, the, mm-hmm. um, the current forces who are sort of in the UK sort of um, directed against us and are trying to sort of roll back uh, roll back these advances. Um, recently, so so basically, there was this this law is currently being appealed um, with a hope towards reinstating treatment for um, teenagers through the NHS once again. So hopefully, that's going to happen. My suspicion is that even were that to happen, the uh, the conditions under which these medical professionals are operating is rapidly changing and making it mm. more and more likely that they're going to be less and less. Uh, permissive, shall we say, mm-hmm. in terms of um, prescribing medications. Um, but the current groups trying to push back against it are uh, the Good Law Project, um, the Endocrine Society, Gender Intelligence. Um, so the Endocrine Society, as the name suggests, are kind of like experts to do with hormones, but also the organization overseeing um, HRT delivery. 
Um, the Good Law Project is kind of a, a liberal civil liberties uh, legal group. Stonewall and Gender Intelligence are both LGBT organizations. So Stonewall UK is focused on all LGBT issues, including trans stuff since 2015. And Gender Intelligence is like specifically, yeah, specifically focused around uh, transgender youth, including um, like uh, kids who have unaccepting parents, which is saying the other main charity mermaids is, is not really into. So they're quite an important group. Mm -hmm. And then finally Brooke charity, which is a charity focusing on sexual health and wellbeing for young people. So you can see there is this kind of like, there are still, um, within the sort of NGO world, like a number of usually pretty expert groups who are sort of focused on, um, advocating for transgender children or providing services to them. But the issue is, is so far, I believe in the, first round of the legal case, these interventions like were not even heard. So the mermaids um, and gendered intelligence who are specifically like the national experts in supporting transgender children were not even allowed to make submissions to the legal ruling. So wow. we're going to hear this Friday. I think, yeah, I think we should hear this Friday about whether that's going to be different during this appeal. But for the moment, the whole legal kind of juridical side of it is looking distinctly kind of rigged against um, providing these services through the NHS to um, transgender youth and i think um i mean to a degree i think it's important to to at least, at least touch back on what some of the stakes are here because i think in i mean in my mind when i look at stuff like the tavistock decision and um as we've kind of alluded to and i think we'll talk about later the like various model bills that have been floating through um just a just really proliferating through uh states throughout the u.s growing um, like a weed this year and in, and in previous years obviously but um faster than ever i think this year mm -hmm. um is that uh you know I, I see these decisions in so in so many ways as a attempt like a really an attempt to kind of keep people from being able to transition at all. Because mm -hmm. if you, if you're forcing to, in the UK example, if you're forcing someone to sort of, you know, not be able to seek any, any kind of care and then wait until the point where, you know, they have come of whatever age the state has deemed appropriate for them to begin seeking that care, then they're, then they only then do they hit the like two to five year waiting list. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, that is, that is already, um, uh, I mean, it just, it just strikes me as another one of these examples of like, uh, you know, very clear cut bureaucratic violence, essentially. Um, my, I think my, my favorite example of which not favorite, but you know, my, my, I think the most clear example of which is one that, um, Dean Spade talks about it in his book, normal life. Um, which is the example of, uh, let, let's say for example, if, if, uh, if someone who's trans wants to change the gender identity on their, um, driver's license in a lot of States, um, in the United States, you have to, uh, in order to do that, you have to have had one of a litany of, uh, you know, qualifying, uh, or actually not a litany, like one of only a few, uh, qualifying gender confirming, uh, surgeries, almost none of which are covered by that state's Medicaid program. So if you're a poor trans person who maybe for instance, the state passed a puberty blocking law so that when you were on your parents' insurance, if your parents had insurance, you know, you couldn't start hormone therapy or anything like that. Um, and like, and then on top of it, you know, once you're, once you're older, if you're, let's say on Medicaid, if you're low income and you're on Medicaid, um, you, you basically, you basically like have to exist in this sort of intentional limbo space created by the state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think so many of these rulings, um, and and framings try to basically just reinforce the idea that this is uh, some sort of 
unnecessary vanity. Like so many of the arguments in the Tavistock case just completely sidestep any mental health implications or just any needs that the children who are seeking care could have and hand wave that away to point to the fact that, oh, all this, you know, all these hormone blockers are not studied, but we have this one study in sheep that shows that, you know, they're dangerous. And until there's medically verifiable, scientifically proven ways to determine someone's experiencing gender dysphoria, it's not safe to expose people to this kind of treatment. I mean, there's this sort of like constant desire to to verify people in mm-hmm. all of this. Yeah. And this is um and this is something which is very much built into the whole processing of the gender identity clinic system because what I guess I want to stay with Britain for a, a minute and then I'm happy to like move through into the US context because um US healthcare is something I've been kind of fixated with for a long time now I think maybe 15 <laughs> Us years <too>. or more <laughs> yeah I know Since, I guess like yeah the Obamacare debacle was kind of what broke my my love for electoral politics for the first time on some level I think that was like how many years ago was that yeah so like and somehow American healthcare has this special and painful place in my heart. That's why I'm a proud subscriber to your Patreon and recommend all your listeners. <laughs> but but um but I'm I'm gonna get to the US in a minute just because I feel like when it comes to so Britain's got this Britain's got this particular setup when it comes to trans healthcare, which makes it uh, I would say like clear it's it's the only aspect of our healthcare system which I can say is clearly worse than the United States, which is more informed by <laughs> the, principle, <laughs> the principle of informed consent. It's but an achievement to do that. Be aware yeah. I'm not using that lightly. That is a, a high, <laughs> that is an accolade. Worse than the United States healthcare in any respect, I think, is impressive. And the reason for this is exactly this um, mentality which the gender identity clinic has had since the inception, that it's key. Uh, role when it's um, sorting patients is to divide the kind of delusional uh, transvestitic fakers <laughs> like the yeah the mere transvestites from the true transsexuals and this has been something which um, the gender identity clinic system has been kind of doggedly um, focused on for decades in a way which um, U.S. healthcare has done much more inconsistently like in a way the U.S. was kind of the pioneer of this approach but they haven't kind of stuck with it in the same way which the gender identity clinic clinic system has. So when um, I'm talking about these legal rulings, it's certainly not in a defense of the existing practitioners or the existing medical establishment um, whatsoever. But it's simply that um, it's pretty remarkable that for these transphobic feminists, the existing state of treatment or lack of treatment, I should say, wasn't bad enough. Like <laughs> the indignities people were forced to being put up were not sufficient. This is kind of the remarkable thing about them. So one of the things I was saying, just bouncing off what you were saying, this this question of the two to five year waiting list, for instance, um, uh, I, I have uh, I have at least one friend who avoided the Tavistock because it's not fully integrated with the adult services. So he was aware that if he was receiving his hormones at age 16 or 17, from them, or he approached them at age 16 or 17, he would probably be prescribed them um, by when he was around 18 and then be bounced off the service and have to approach another gender identity clinic and then get, go through another waiting list. That's one example Jeez. of what I'm talking about. So there is this kind of like, as you say, the bureaucratic kind of indignity and um, the like absurd waiting lists has been a feature. Um, yeah, well, this was, I guess, this, this story was maybe from the late 2000s. Uh, mm. But um, but these kind of um, these kind of conditions have been longstanding, and they've been intensified not only by um, COVID, of course, 
but also uh, like the heavy duty austerity, which has been implemented in Britain since 2010 by one conservative uh, government after the next. So to give you another example, so basically uh, I've written a long piece about this um, with my friend J.N. Hode, who's based in um, uh, the north of England. And um, uh, just to give you like a sample of the kind of stuff we're talking about, uh, like last year there was a um, Freedom of Information Act used on the Laurels, which is the name of the gender identity clinic in Exeter. Very lovely name, the Laurels. But they wanted to know how many how many patients had been processed by the Laurels. And I think out of over 500 people who had approached them, they had processed two patients uh, wow. for <laughs> referrals in wow. 2020. Yeah, of wow. course, this is the context of COVID. <laughs> but at this point, you're basically, the system is just non-functional. And this is for adults. So like, so basically... <laughs> The, the notion that like um, teenagers are just approaching these medical professionals and the medical professionals are like roping them into a discursive net of like transgender trend, which is saying that hormones are going to solve all their problems is kind of like farcically off base. Like this is not the way that any part of the system ever operates. If anything, it continually discourages medical transition. It um, leaves interminable waiting lines that only the most um, kind of like only the most determined, um, especially a teenager would be willing to get through. And, um, fundamentally it's kind of, it tries to discourage people from medically transitioning at every turn. And mm -hmm. this is exactly why so many British trans people, um, have resorted to kind of gray market or black market means, um, with the difficulty being that now, of course, having, um, temporarily at least, uh, prevented any under 18s from, um, accessing these services. Um, now for trans feminine, for trans women, the same forces are kind of trying to do the same thing. I believe, I forget her name, but they've got a baroness, they've got someone who's in the House of Lords and she was, she's been writing letters agitating for estrogen to be um, remarked as like a controlled substance, which means Jeez, that uh, you'd have import yeah. restrictions. Um, you know, this is the immediate next move. As soon as they've restricted it for uh, children and teenagers, they then move through to trying to restrict it for adults because um, ultimately, like that's always been their agenda. Like they've never been mm -hmm. interested in protecting women, protecting children from transgender people. Um, in the long run, the aim has always been to pick particular fights where they think they can make um, trans people seem predatory or threatening uh, or deluded in the public press, and then kind of press through these institutional means for more and more victories. With the end goal, I would say, of driving trans people out of public life. Some people would say, like some kind of some kind of genocide or whatever. I'm not sure what exactly what term you use for it is the most important thing, but definitely to make Britain an inhospitable and unhabitable um, place for people who want to be um, openly uh, and like proudly transgender. Yeah, it occurs to me that in like reading any of the sort of turf like arguments or like the these gender critical philosophers or, or, or even the people <laughs> bring the legal cases like the... You know, it's it's like a very wacky subculture. Like it's, I I just like it is it is as weird to me as like QAnon is. Um, <laughs> but it, it the thing that the thing that like is remarkable is the way that they have enrolled um, both uh, like formal institutions like the courts as well as uh, sort of like much much broader like social sectors in their grip. Like through these arguments about moral panic and through these sort of like very concrete. Uh, sort of like slippery slope type 
uh, concerns mm-hmm. and like moral mm-hmm. moral tales about the future. And when I think about the United States, it's just like this the like all these bills that are like going through now. I think the one that's that's maybe for, up for consideration. I think today in in Montana maybe. Um, or either up up for consideration today or recently is just like the 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 high school sports issue is like they're right. like oh Ugh. you know we wouldn't want uh, there to be some sort of uh, you know violation of our you know hi- highly sex segregated uh, <laughs> sports we wouldn't like want to change the competitive dynamics I think it was in Tennessee too this is like uh, one of the big uh, sort of arguments and like. You know, I I would guess that like most parents don't know anything about uh, you know trans health, but they're like, I don't know, can they like, oh, I want my daughter to get a scholarship, and so I don't, I want her to like, you know, that like they they have no concerns, but like this is something that you can like piggyback on and like ride on these sort of um, more more common like receptors for the moral panic argument. Yeah, for sure. So I suppose to move into some comparison. So this is kind of what distinguishes. Britain, I suppose, is exactly um, like, sure, these, these transphobic feminists and trans, transphobic right-wing um, people, they, they exist everywhere, needless to say, like there's not any place which is free of them. But the kind of capture of liberal institutions, of journalists, of like editorial boards in major newspapers, um, and like, uh, in, like key organizations in the established feminist movement as well, um, I don't think there's anywhere else um, than Britain that's quite seen the same degree of that, which makes, um, yeah, it makes the kind of anti-trans measures you see pretty different. Like, for instance, I'm based in Vienna. I have been based here for five years now, coming up to five years. And in Austria, the main um, the main route for sort of emancipatory change, because the electoral politics is so right wing, um, the main route for emancipatory change is often the courtroom. Like, for instance, um, transgender people until 2010 had to be, um, they had to receive a genital examination from a medical professional before they could change their um, name on their, on their passport. And this was overturned through the um, high court. Uh, like, same-sex marriages were not... Um, uh, able to happen here. And same as the US, Austria actually um, won this through a human rights ruling. Um, and the same is true for intersex uh, people who um, wanted to have an X marker on their passport. This was a legal victory, which was won through the courts. So what you see in, in Austria very clearly, and, I, and at some points, the United States, I know that's a more complex story, um, but you see this kind of use of the courtroom for what it's fair to say are emancipatory changes and actually like drastic transformations of daily life um, for trans and intersex people here, whereas in the in the United Kingdom, um, exactly exactly because of this kind of capturing of uh, of journalists of other kind of professional bodies and so on by these kind of uh, liberal transphobes, I guess you'd say um, liberal to kind of centre right um, transphobes, um, there's sort of this scope for legal change which trends in the other direction. Um, but yeah, to bring it back to the US, what's striking to me with all the stuff I've seen in the United States of late is that there's kind of this shift, right? So obviously with Trump no longer in office, um, what we're going to see for the next few years is sort of a reversal of at least like federal discrimination, um, which was enacted between 2016 to 2020. And, um, for that reason, I think there's sort of this reactivation of, um, right-wing localities, right-wing states to try and sort of like provide some sort of countervailing force to this and say like, well, 
he's not our president and these are like the <laughs> the kind of right-wing <laughs> measures we're going to do to at least make life miserable for trans um, people living in the state, you know what I mean? Um, which, uh, again, like this is nothing entirely new. There's always been massive variations within the United States and um, some of the harshest and most draconian uh, laws against trans people, I think, were in um, New York State for a time, these laws around not wearing, I was in, no, no, it was a New York City ordinance, which was stopping people from wearing a certain number of garments, which weren't of the yeah. correct gender you'd find on the mm -hmm. birth certificate, right? Um, which then rotating to today, now there's actually like statewide um, restrictions on prohibiting transgender people from using the um, the bathroom of their, of their current sex. So yeah, clearly like the state level is what a lot of conflict, whether it's legal or um, institutional, whatever, how, how, like I think that's how we can expect things to play out in the United States um, in the near future. And I guess that's just a continuation of what we've seen in the past, right? Yeah. I mean, and it's, and it's a it's sort of for these sort of, uh, you know, anti-trans like activists and law firms, it's a sort of ideal venue for them. I mean, people don't really pay much attention to state politics. It's uh, the, the characteristics of state legislators in some states are, yeah, th these are people that you might th have to throw out of a bar on a regular basis to get there, you know, like in the state legislature. Right. Was that this, this North, was it North Carolina that had this famous, um, famous early example of this like uh, six years ago or so, right? And I think that definition of your, your sex, your, your, your sex is defined according to this le legislation as whether you have two X's or an XY chromosome which anyone who knows the basics of endocrinology will tell you <laughs> is not necessarily an indicator of anything much like uh, right. depending on your your receptor sensitivity like you can well, well anyway it's basically clearly just being used as a transphobic shorthand but the other upshot is that intersex people are immediately impacted by these um local legislations um mm -hmm. whether that would be any less true whether they'd write in exemptions for intersex people if they knew a bit more about biology i don't know it's not really a relevant concern. Well, but um, it's also, I mean, they've also been written into this new slate of, uh, of bills only as far as intersex children, uh, are, are declared, you know, the, the only people to, to be able to undergo like any kind of surgery, usually mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, without consent at all. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to look at, especially in these model bills that are popping up all over the U.S. right now, you it's it's very telling to look at the definitions section, because often in the beginning of these, they will use the same line that you're talking about, Jules, of, you know, sex relates to the specific chromosomes. And then there will be like, you know, schedule A says two X is this, an X and a Y is this. And then schedule C will be like, except for, you know, <laughs> minors that are intersex who none of this applies and parents fully retain the ability to consent to them being operated on as infants sometime Great. like some yeah. of the bill texts literally say infants and and it's so it's so interesting to consider how the rights of intersex people play into this here too because for example like in um the i believe it's the Tennessee sports ban bill HB3 which is a wholesale ban on trans and young people trans young people participating in athletics this one actually includes intersex people too so anyone who transitioned pre-puberty um, is included in this blanket ban and intersex athletes are also included in this ban and it's interesting to see what 
rights of intersex people are written in as a protection, which is, you know, non-consensual surgery on children where the parents can consent. But what's written out, which is this participation in in sports and demonstrating sort of an ideal body of the the gender species. Yeah. So this is actually something which is flagged up. I, I appreciated it being flagged up in this vice piece. States are gearing up to attack trans kids' rights in 2021. Um, yeah, it sort of flags this up. But Vice have been a strangely intersex savvy publication, I have to say, for all of their many other failings. Um, they've had yeah, some that's unusual. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they've had some good pieces on on the the state of intersex people, including what I wrote, which obviously was a wonderful bit of writing. Uh, but um, <laughs> the the situation with intersex people is it's really um, it's really striking. This is like the reliable. Uh, feature that there are always these exemptions and there, these exemptions appear not only in um, these bits of legislations, but also that are in a whole bunch of different national contexts, um, exemptions written into FGM legislation. So um, in Britain, for instance, if you uh, oh, what give is, someone... Uh, what is FGM just for listeners who might not know? Okay. Female genital mutilation or female genital cutting. Um, female genital cutting is a, a term that's more, used more regularly these days, I suppose. Um, and uh, and female genital cutting it, legislation in Britain is exceptionally strict. Like you could potentially be incarcerated for giving a consenting adult a labia piercing um, if it's yeah. That's that's the strictness we're talking about. And yet there are specific exemptions, including on uh, clitorectomies or clitoral reductions or whatever term the doctors would rather use there. Um, clitoral cutting is specifically allowed in the instances of intersex infants and children. And this is kind of like a very consistent feature. And it's actually, um, well, this is like a horrifying a horrifying fact in itself, but this is actually only the most explicit part of a much broader um, principle, which is that you have all of these strict legal restrictions, these two to four year waiting lists, these extensive psychiatric evaluations and so on for people who are trying to go down the trans route, for people who are trying to um, physically transition for what they understand to be psychological reasons. Um, you have these extensive restrictions, but when it comes to intersex, infants, children, uh, and also adolescents, kind of all bets are off. Like we're talking yeah. endocrinological interventions. So the exact same treatments, which like... Um, well, the exact same treatments and worse. So like people being given uh, barrages of the sex hormones that the doctors deem appropriate for them. Um, this, you know, there's, there's all kinds of uh, treatments specifically with uh, children being misled and deceived as to the nature of children being told they're taking vitamin pills and they're being given huge doses of estrogen or testosterone. Mm-hmm. Situations like that are simply like not uncommon for intersex people. And um to, to me, that isn't really a mystery around this. Like, it seems mysterious when you put it this way. It's like, well, why are people so happy to see um, both hormonal and surgical interventions into intersex in- infants and so horrified by it for transgender infants? And the the reason is basically that these um, these procedures with intersex infants are framed as kind of like correcting the problem. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas for transgender uh, adolescents and children, the problem considered be reframed as like, it's like a psychological problem. It's a delusion. We need to fix their brain, not their body. So this is like the distinction, but mm-hmm. in either instance, like, um, yeah. And I, I have to say, I've never seen a concerted effort by any of these, uh, transphobic feminist groups or even a particular trans feminist, uh, transphobic feminist, sorry, trans feminists are on the story. Um, <laughs> I've never seen a, I've never seen a transphobic feminist 
um, go out of their way and campaign against the treatment of um, intersex people. Right. Um, at best, mm -hmm. there's this kind of tokenizing deployment. They find like, yeah, they find one intersex person they roughly agree with and sort of boost this particular individual. But um, I've simply never seen kind of like campaigning and certainly not on this kind of organization determination and scale, uh, which you're seeing. Um, I've just never seen it around intersex infants. Um, but obviously in the US, I mean, in the US, it's more, more led by the right wing. So there's kind of this aspect of, well, what, what would you expect? Of course, they hate intersex people and prefer they don't exist. Like that, that kind of logically follows, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The one thing about them, they're consistent. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I'll there's say this, that for them. There's a sort of binary presented between trans people and intersex people or trans children and intersex children where, where, uh, a lot of the bill text of, of these, uh, proposals basically frame, intersex children as being biologically verifiable in need of these right. treatment and trans children as lacking that uh, biocertification of need and and um, this sort of determination of like what is valid measurement of biological need and what isn't valid measurement of biological need and how that's pathologized through law and policy is something that you know for for centuries in the United States and all over the world has been uh, an incredible force to deny people access to care. If we think about just the sort of connections that this has with the ways that, um, for example, like disability has been pathologized or criminalized or the way that race has been pathologized and criminalized. These bills that I think we're seeing moving forward, which are definitely emboldened by the rising anti-trans attitudes in the UK and the way that that sort of has spread across the world. And it's very much normalizing through, you know, people's childhood favorite author, JK Rowling, who's like, you know, trans mm -hmm. people are predatory. What was it? She wrote like a novel under her pen name. Whereas there's <laughs> yeah, like right. a trans serial killer or something. And, you know, and you have people like Masha Gessen who who basically are trying to normalize this in the American press. And and I think this is resulting in this emboldened new wave of eugenics to reinforce the heteronormative family in the U.S. And I think we can expect to see this explode under Biden, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about Masha Gessen for, for a bit <laughs> if you want. I don't, have, I don't have an enormous amount to say about them, I should say, but there is... So, 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 right. So this was a New Yorker piece. So this is sort of like your, yeah, kind of liberal press, like liberal long form think piece kind of thing. And it says we need to change the terms of the debate on trans kids. And, um, yeah, initially it was kind of unclear if they were coming. Um, so initially it was unclear if they just didn't realize how bad the situation is in Britain, which is quite easily done. Like you wouldn't guess <laughs> mm -hmm. right. how bad Britain is. Like <laughs> the stuff I've, explained i'm sure will astonish quite a lot of people listening if you're not familiar with it um you would but yeah, think that like that the journalistic standards of the new yorker would require that that masha investigate it but no well yeah no. so clearly they're going they're going easy <laughs> on them um yeah because because they are themselves a, 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 tra a transgender or non-binary individual so like they, in some way, I feel, got some leeway with this piece. But yeah, I mean, the piece doesn't really bear much resemblance to reality because the piece's framing is very much like, well, how about we try and, and have a non-therapeutic, non-clinical um, intervention kind of approach assumed as the norm, um, which is the norm. Like, that's very much, you have to go through extensive, you have to go through 
um, 10 to 20 psychological sessions or, or psychological and other medical professional sessions um, as a teenager, or you did when it was still possible. So like the assumption is very much that most um, trans kids or trans teenagers, I would rather say, um, have to just kind of tough it out and um, sort out this stuff when they're older. So the piece doesn't really have that much resemblance to reality. But then there was a, another, there was basically a Twitter episode. And normally I don't dignify Twitter drama with a attention because I think Twitter should be its own, it should be its own kind of self-contained hellscape, I think. And, mm -hmm. and amusing, you can pull like amusing memes from there and not talk about the, the detailed conversations. But yeah, there was basically a, a back and forth between um, Marsha, who I actually have to say I've never... Like I, I didn't really know who they were. I think they wrote a rather terrible book about Russia, it looks like. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but basically they were saying, well, I've been a journalist for all of these decades. And that the person they were talking to, who is a adult transitioning um, trans woman, um, who I'm not going to name just because it's not, I don't know, I don't know if she wants to be dragged into this again. Um, basically, Marsha said, and for most of that time, you were a a uh, privileged white male or whatever, a white man. Yeah, you were a white, uh, a white man from most uh, most of this time, as if like, um, yeah, specifically like Marsha was was framing their own gender nonconformity as like something which had existed throughout their adult life, and this um, this uh, trans theorist they were interacting with had only come to gender conformity late in the day, which um, needless to say was not the case. But there is this kind of like. Specifically, there is this, this, this tweet was kind of taken up because it seems to sort of exemplify um, a very common thing within the trans, uh, within trans communities or within transgender circles, which is there is this kind of, there is a lot of differentiation and there is a lot of people specifically, um, specifically like having trans misogynistic attitudes. So um, just basically holding themselves to a different standard um, to specifically trans women. And this was sort of like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think there's like this kind of episode sort of shows you that things are not always like, like there's never really like a single unified um, transgender position on things. And increasingly in Britain, the way you're seeing it is there's an increasing number of kind of self proudly and openly self-identified transsexuals who see their transsexual identity as like differentiated from the rest of transgender experience. Um, and obviously this is not the case here. It's more of this kind of like elevation, the sort of romantic elevation of gender nonconformity. Um, which particular people who trans women aren't trans women, I kind of have special access to for some reason. And like, um, yeah, I guess there's a lot of, there's a lot more to be said about that. And sort of probably the, the interesting thing for me is this is kind of like, this has been a pretty continuous thing um, for a long while now. And this was originally what Whipping Girl, Julia Serrano's book is kind of primarily a response to. Um, so it's interesting that like in the circles and the company I keep, these debates are very much like a matter of history. Like this is something we've kind of talked about continuously for um, a very long time, like longer than a decade. But for um, some people, this is kind of not, trans misogyny is not an obvious thing to identify and they don't think intuitively in these terms. So um, yeah, probably that's one thing to chalk down to like generational conflict. But um, but yeah, this was an interesting, an interesting question. But yeah, the piece itself, um, it seemed to have an enormous amount of attention around it, but now I think we can kind of like, hopefully we can move on at this point. Yeah. I mean, I, I think my worry is, is that you, you see these opinions sort of filtered into the mainstream press in a way that replicates the strategies that we've seen, um, 
like transcritical politics used in the United Kingdom. And I worry about the legitimacy that this sort of social reproduction of the, well, there are voices to be heard on both sides as um, for sure as really just providing some sort of like normalization and justification of this really invasive overly critical examination of like who is deserving and who is not deserving of healthcare for sure I mean you don't need the red in a red and brown alliance if you've got a bunch of liberals <laughs> right <laughs> to yes. just like throw on the fire there what would the color there be the red and uh Red or uh, brown and brown and what? Like I don't know what the liberal color is. Beige. Brown and beige. Yeah. yeah. Beige. <laughs> well done. A puce alliance. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> we need to somehow get to grips with this the subjectivity of the liberal journalist. Like what what makes <laughs> what makes people think this way and organize their lives in these in these kind of columnist sort of fashion. I don't know. I think it's the desire. It's the desire to have the uh, the but have you thought about it this way moment in the, <laughs> in the middle of a piece of rhetoric. Right. Do we want to get into some of the details of the U.S. bills for a second? Because Jules, you and I were DMing about mm-hmm. some of the justifications that some of these uh, politicians are using, and I I was saying to you that. I think it was about the bill in Mississippi that right. that there was uh, the state senator had sort of done this post on Facebook to try and justify her pushing this bill. Her name is uh, Angela Burks Hill. Yeah. Can we just uh, I, I want to get into the specifics of these bills in this one that you're saying, but I just want to be really clear in terms of the scale, mm-hmm. because I think a lot of people don't necessarily know. But the st- in terms of what's happening in the states, um, just in just this year, which, you know, again, we're only you know, 20, 20 odd days into the year. <laughs> just this year, there are proposed laws um, going to state legislatures, um, not only and this is this isn't even the 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 end of it like there are proposed laws just specifically on prohibiting healthcare for trans youth mm-hmm. like not even yeah. counting other types um bills in the following states um Alabama, Iowa, Indiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Oklahoma, uh South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas and Utah. So that's, you know, I just wanted to be really explicit for listeners. Yeah, they're getting them in early as well. Yeah, HB one, HB two, they're they're uh, they're front loading these. Yeah, and and I mean, I, I think it's it's interesting because Jules, you and I were talking about this sort of like a- apathy uh, in the people <laughs> that are pushing it too, which really kind yeah. of chilled can, you and I. Can I maybe read this out? This Angela Box Hill. I'm sure yes, she's. Yeah. I'm sure she's delighted that an Indosex like she, single will be reading at home. She, oh, she's, no, she's, she's so listening. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure she's a big healthcare for all. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's for a context, she's a. Uh, she is uh, Angela Burks Hill is a state senator from Mississippi who is the uh, sponsor of the MS Fairness Act, which would mm. block all. All healthcare, including seeing a psychiatrist to talk about gender dysphoria from the age of 21 and under in the state of Mississippi. So she wants to take everything. And this is her explanation. So she says, so I filed the MS Fairness Act again because I knew if Biden got the opportunity, he would do this. I'm angry. Yes. Some states will fight back. Will Mississippi just take it? My bill is buried in two Senate committees. It should have been passed last year. Who is going to fight for your daughters not to be cheated by biological males deciding to identify as a girl? Question mark, question mark. (laughs) 
women shouldn't have to change clothes in front of men either. I think that was covered by the last sentence, but okay. Women shouldn't have to charge, change clothes in front of men either. That federal money will be the carrot. Get ready. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. But, but there's this kind of tonal flatness there, isn't it? Like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's oddly she, sedate, right? There's something she, so unusual about it. She ends it like with get ready and you feel like she's trying to cheer herself up. It's, there's many questions about this bit of writing. but I, I think some of them could be answered by our previous statements about sort of the nature of state senators. But uh, I think I think, too, it, it speaks to the fact that these are model bills. This is this is all, you know being copy and pasted from like interest group websites and well it's i mean it's particularly terrifying to see someone introduce such a violent bill that restricts healthcare access and to do it in such a banal way and in a way that doesn't even seem particularly committed to like hatred either you know right. and, I, and <laughs> I think i think just when you actually look at at the text of the bill at the text of what she's actually trying to get passed it's quite awful to compare sort of her apathy with what it is that she's actually pushing, which is that, you know, there is a statement in this bill that says that doctors cannot even present the idea of transitioning to children, that that could be criminalized, that that will be right. criminalized under the bill. Um, the reason that they ca- that this is criminalized in the bill, to quote the bill, is that uh, minors are, quote, incapable of comprehending the negative implications and life-altering difficulties attending to these interventions. It goes on to state, minors are unable to fully appreciate the risks and life implications, including permanent sterility that result from the use of puberty blockers, which is false, uh-huh. cross-sex hormones, and surgical procedures. So what you have is the basically the direct replication of what's being pushed in the UK. Yeah. And it's this Abigail Schreier type framing, right? The the inadequate development of a child's a child's or a teenager's brain that's like like they don't know what they're getting themselves into. So so they can only do that when they're 21. <laughs> Which it's just remarkable. And the reason so the reason for the overlap um, so basically the reason for the overlap has not been properly abs- explored. It hasn't been explored to my satisfaction. What we do know what we do know is that the gender critical movement in Britain has repeatedly gone through splits and infighting mm-hmm. um, because certain members, because predominantly its base is drawn from, uh, you know, your guardian reading liberals, your um, mm-hmm. the, the kind of professional classes, but also in some cases it's drawn from left wing activists, um, people who maybe have a career um, even in, even in socialist causes or trade unionism in some instances. So there's been repeated these splits because there are differing attitudes within the gender critical um, transphobic feminist movement within Britain concerning how to approach the Heritage Foundation. Uh, which I'm sure American listeners are already, it's an, already an organization you're well aware of. And yeah. it has been actively courting them for the better part of a decade at this point, um, because it sees them as this kind of dynamic force and also like potential comrades across the pond who it wants to like enlist in its cause. So this is the reason that there's some kind of back and forth, I think, 
But these connections are obviously not really something which the British media has any interest in systematically exploring. So we kind of have to piece together what's going on through these occasional splits and schisms and noisy um, rows which you have between different transphobic feminists, because this is a very controversial question. And there are within the movement, some people who think you should avoid um, far-right organizations that want to reverse gay marriage, for instance. Um, but uh, the the kind of interaction of um, transphobic feminism in Britain and like these enormous kind of like, people often say it's evangelical benefactors, but I think that's an oversimplification, but basically yeah. like, pro, let's call them the pro-family right in the United States. Um, there's some kind of interaction happening there. And I think it's something which we should like put some effort into investigating. Um, but that's that's kind of all I can say about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's this sort of like this idea that that healthcare is a vehicle to reinforce like the biological family and the importance of the family and the reproduction of the family moving forward. And and what you see in a lot of these bills, and maybe it's worth going through them a couple at a time, like we've got Bill HB1 in Alabama. That one is a, a class C felony for doctors who um, perform any type of medical procedure procedure, including the writing of a prescription or the issuance of medication to a minor. But then that one, that reproduces the claims that puberty blockers are irreversible, that puberty blockers are a gateway to hormones. You have the Texas bill, HB 68, which um, takes the treatment of trans children um, up to the current medical standards and includes that in the uh, legal definition of child abuse. <laughs> which is definitely a little bit further than a lot of the other things that we've seen. But basically, this one is just an update to state law that includes what is now currently the standard medical procedure for treating trans, trans children as um, that best practice standard becomes just included as part of the description of statutory child abuse, with, of course, there is an exception for uh, children who are, quote, born with a medically verifiable genetic disorder of sex development. So again, you have the exclusion of, of um, surgery right. on intersex children. Intersex children always get, get left outside of these protections, right? Yeah. And then we have, you know, Senate Bill number 2171, which is the one in Mississippi, which bans all trans care for up to the age of 21. In Utah, you have HB 92. They went for some extra offensive bill language in HB 92, where they uh, spent a lot of time outlining the definition of biological sex. There's like a significant section on that. It's really... I need to read this one. That sounds great. Uh, it's uh, They go extra here. And then they use really offensive terminology like attempted sex change um, and they basically in this bill not only are prohibiting care but they also seek to legally define all trans health care as cosmetic. I gotta say my favorite so far is the child abuse one so this is presumably going to be a state which is going to have like kidnapping your kid and sending them off in an airplane to another state to a conversion camp is going to be legal but like allowing them to change their name and dress is going to be child abuse. So that's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's very clarifying, isn't it? Well, it's, for the longest time, like the rights of trans people have been framed as being indecent and in opposition to like, I guess, normal culture, you know, as, as much as they want to frame this kind of healthcare as cosmetic, it's absolutely not. Uh, HRT is not a, a, um, a trendy mm -hmm. thing to just experiment with because you've your all your friends are doing it and people are going to lose what is already very 
very austere access to really important care and all for the name of enforcing community standards and norms. For sure. I'm just having a look at the house bill number 1476 in North Dakota, which has a great, its definitions are great because it goes from biological female, biological male, community standards of decency, conversion therapy. These are the first terms it's defining. And then number five is drag queen story time, which means a a non-secular event where men dress up as women. So you could do a drag king story time. Yeah, that's legal. um, (laughs) Not impacted on. I don't think um, they know what a drag king is. I don't think that that, concept has reached them yet. But some part of me is delighted. Oh, yeah. And then it moves on. Term six is an emotional appeal, which is obviously not something let it sink in that these definitions if yeah. enacted would have the effect of law which is <laughs> frightening thing to behold i just love seeing that jumps from biological female and biological male to drag queen story time in a few entries <laughs> this is like this is the, the mindset this is revealing is fantastic yeah i feel like what we're seeing in so often is this like constant reinforcement that um that really in order to seek any type of care, you need to have the resources for it. And so much about healthcare is not just about, you know, theoretical access as we're talking about. It's about the distribution. Uh, it's about what the clinic's patient load is because the the more that we take these things and we treat them like they are like niche or like they are somehow unnecessary or, you know, and that's just like sort of the baseline, like liberal position, not even like mm-hmm. a crazy right winger, like, oh, this is like some sort of like decadent perversion. Um, but the, right. the longer we pretend that 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 austerity is real and that there is only so much healthcare to go around, the, the longer that arguments like these, which are really trying to push quite violent things through policy, the longer that stuff has legs. And I, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of the restriction on trans healthcare comes from this idea that the sort of zero sum thinking that that healthcare has to come from somewhere, that there's a finite amount of care resources and really like we can't be wasting it on things that are frivolous or maybe not real. Yeah. And I think what links the um, experiences of people with those chronic other with chronic conditions, which physicians treat kind of skeptically and um, uh, transgender people as there is this kind of question of trust. Like a lot of people are just, um, yeah, a lot of people treat their physicians quite warily and like they have uh, a large number of experiences, which kind of they base that on. Um, and in the United States, like you have, um, especially like you have these, the, the emergence of these kind of like, uh, superstar or like e-celebrity physicians. Like one of them is Dr. Will Powers, who has this, um, practice, which is, I think, primarily focused on gender identity treatments at this point. Um, and like, he talks quite a lot on his, um, very interesting Facebook account about how he has like, you know, thousands of patients and several hundred people who are interested in flying from out of state to Michigan, um, to like receive treatment from him. And on the one hand, it's kind of like, oh, a heartening story. What a good doctor. Everyone's happy to see him. But on the other hand, like, should we really need like physician celebrities to provide these kind of basic, mm-hmm. uh, services? <laughs> like obviously in a way it's one of these kind of, uh, horrifying features of our current, um, our current setup, but this is such an exceptional, like this is something you'll jump on a plane for or, or ride in a car for 10 hours to reach. You know what I mean? Actually, which maybe brings me to, to my last question, which is, can you tell us a little bit about your forthcoming book that you've edited transgender Marxism? Because I, I think as you know, you and I talk about all the time, Joel is like all of these things that we've discussed today are, are, are part of the reason why the 
the experience of healthcare truly sucks and is designed to make people feel absolutely worthless. And I yeah. really like your work because you really push for you push past it. You push for rethinking the ways that we um, that we frame these things because it's it's fucking important to think bigger than just beating back a bad law trying to make something that sucks worse. Right, for sure. And um, Transgender Marxism, so this collection, which I edited with Elia Rook and um, is out with Pluto Press later in the year in May. And um, this collection is pretty much exclusively focused on a whole bunch of transgender theory from a trans, yeah, from a trans Marxist perspective, which uh, I think it's a total of 16 contributors, including the for and the afterword. Like, there's a bunch of different perspectives in there, which basically we had noticed kind of, let's say, percolating or like developing itself. Um, but up until this point had mostly been focused in sort of more ephemeral and more fleeting kind of short term spaces like social media, um, you know, like like basically in places which weren't really accessible or lasting in the way which we liked. So we decided to put together a book, myself and Ellie, and um, there are a wide range of different views and different things which we tackle. And yeah, like you say, very much with this orientation towards not just kind of like understanding our current conditions, but also like how we can make some revolutionary change and, and transform our circumstances. Probably the like to touch up on a few of the kind of essays, there's a lot of different topics covered in the collection, but probably a few which are like relevant to our discussion today. Um, Zoe Belinsky has a piece on disability and transgender. Um, experiences and how those two kind of run together. There's also been, yeah, Jan Hode, who I wrote this gender identity clinic piece, has a um, a piece on her experiences in Lancaster. So like what it means to kind of live somewhere which isn't a metropolitan area, isn't kind of serviced in all of these ways that like larger cities sometimes are. And um, yeah, so there's like a wide range of, oh yeah, and, and Noah Zazanis, I think is like a friend of your podcast, right? Like anyway, he's got, he's got a pretty remarkable piece on, um, yeah, communities and um, transgender social reproduction. So, like, I think there's, like, a wide range of stuff which your listeners would be really into. And, um, yeah, feel free to check it out. Yeah, I'm really excited, and we'll have to have you on when that comes out. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Just it. Just another excuse to, to get you Just back. Just to hang out, yeah, as always. <laughs> <laughs> Jules, yeah, where, sure. can, where can people find you if they want to um, follow your work? Right, so I have two things to follow. I've got a Twitter account, which, as I mentioned, it's not my favorite website, but yeah, I'm <laughs> at Social Repro on Twitter, and you can see more of my takes than anyone could possibly want. And um, <laughs> I also have my own Patreon, so that's, um, yeah, Queercom, patreon.com slash Queercom, and you can support and see exclusive bits of my writing and whatever. And yeah, please pre-order the book if you're so minded. Jules, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. It's uh, it's unfortunate to only have horrible things to talk about, but it's always a pleasure to talk about horrible things with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. We've got to get to grips with them and then we can end them. And yeah. Medicare for all and all that. Exactly. Well, with that, we'll leave it here. Pre-order Jules's book, subscribe to her Patreon, um, and also to ours, patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week.
did they sit wait sorry did it define uh drag queen story time as a non-secular did it oh no i think wait is it secular or non-secular um no, I'll redo the full thing. Drag Queen okay. Storytime means a non-secular event. Yeah, it's a non-secular event where men oh. dress up as women and display inherently sexualized performance targeting minors with the purpose of promoting and normalizing faith-based beliefs and practices that stem from the secular humanist religion. There you go. <laughs> Drag queens are secular humanists. You heard it here first. Okay. <laughs> In North Dakota. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of secular humanist drag queens in North Dakota, I'm sure. That's a, <laughs> it's a big issue. Oh, my God.